Welcome to Intrepid Times. I'm very excited to be speaking with British author Anthony Satin, author of Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shape Our World, as well as many other books of, how would you best categorize them? History, travel, travel reportage? You kind of blur the lines uh, between genres a little bit, I think. Yeah, I do. I, it, publishers get really anxious about all this stuff. And, <laughs> and, and so, do, so do booksellers who don't quite know where to put it. I started out writing fiction. Um, that was my original intention. And then I got sidetracked into traveling and, and writing about travel. I would describe myself as a storyteller. And some of the stories I've told are true and some of them I've made up. But at the moment, I'm going through a period of writing stories about uh, about real events. And and I went from writing about my own, the things I encountered when I was traveling, to now I'm writing about history. But for me, it's all a continuation of the thing that I started out doing quite a long time ago now, which is to write down stories that, are, that you know, strike me as, as worthy of putting down. And the, the kind of center of gravity for, for a lot of your work has been the Middle East, uh, Egypt, Morocco. Is, is that right? Yes. When I was writing fiction, I was I was living in London. I was lucky enough to be offered a, a room in, in 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 what was then not very fashionable Notting Hill, and uh, in someone's someone's house. And I lived there, and I was very had no money at all. I was very very skinny. I had a friend, a girlfriend, who had made uh, lots of money on some property deal or other, and who said, "Let's go away on holiday." And I had always wanted to go to Egypt, and so I said, "Take me to Egypt." and I absolutely loved everything about it and she hated everything about it. So it was the end of one relationship and the beginning of another. And out of that, out of that encounter came a desire to write about Egypt. And, um, and so I started doing that. And I seem to have done it ever since, as is now sort of more than 35 years of writing about Egypt, which is obviously a, 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 an extraordinary resource. And once I started writing about Egypt, well, then it's not very difficult to think about, well, what's next door? And I, you know, I went to Libya and I went to Palestine and Israel and, and then I spread further up Syria, Turkey, and then the whole way along to Morocco. And that's been much of what I've written about. I, I did write a book about um, explorers going in search of Timbuktu in the 18th, early 19th century. But mostly it's been, it's been uh, North Africa and the Middle East. And, and then this book came along, which is um, a, a, well, a global history, and it's obviously the most difficult and ambitious thing I've ever done. And I thought uh, it came out of a really simple idea. I was writing a biography of uh, of T. E. Lawrence, the Lawrence of Arabia, but about Lawrence before he became of Arabia, when he was Lawrence, as I put it, of a place called Carchemish, which is down on the Turkish-Syrian border. And he had the idea that uh, he was out of, out of university. He was working as an archaeologist on a British museum dig. And he was wondering what he was going to do after the dig. He thought maybe the dig was only going to last one year. And he'd heard about a nomad tribe in, um, that moved between what was then Arabia, what's now Saudi Arabia, through Jordan and up into Syria. And um, they were, they were a, an extremely hardcore nomad group who, uh, who, di who didn't really hurt. They were sort of, they hunted with, uh, with Saluki dogs and they seem to have been ex extremely, extremely um, hard and difficult people to live with. And he, Lawrence had the idea he was going to go and travel with them and write a, write a book about them. And he never did because the world, the First World War intervened and then he was Lawrence of Arabia and he couldn't do things like that. So I started thinking, whatever happened to that tribe? In my travels, I've met and, and have spent time with a huge number of nomadic peoples. And then the world blew up and it became uh, impossible to consider traveling across, uh, you know, through, in Saudi and, uh, and up 
into Jordan because Islamic State and things like that. And so I thought, well, what about nomads? And, and the more I thought about nomads, I thought, why are nomads not in our histories? And if they are, they are, I mean, there are obviously they are, serious academics have written about nomads. But you know, in the general history that's taught at school, if you can name check any nomads, it's going to be Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, and Timur or, or Tamburlaine. And these, and the, the billing they get is they are the great killers of the world. You know, Tamburlaine is, is said to have killed two or three or four million people. You know, he's up there with, with the monsters of the world. And I just thought that's not true. That's not my experience of my interactions and my understanding of nomads. And so I thought I would write this book. That's how this came about. One of the I suppose few uh, exceptions to people who've written, I guess, lovingly about nomads was someone I was very uh, thrilled to hear mentioned uh, from quite early on in your book, which is uh, Bruce Chatwin. Has his work been an inspiration to yours in, in some way? Yes, well, I, I, um, I'm of the generation that uh, when Chatwin's, well, when I, when I first started writing, I was I had a two-day job as a proofreader at a company, and somebody at the company handed me in Patagonia. They read some of the stories I'd been writing. I had no intention, no understanding of travel writing at the time. But uh, but my boss handed me a copy of In Patagonia and said, "I think um, you'll find this interesting. It sounds, you know, I think you you and he have things in common." And I was obviously extremely flattered as an unpublished writer at the time. And so I started taking an interest in Chatwin's writing, but it was really when Songlines came out, which I think was 1989 or thereabouts. I and, and the group of, a group of friends, uh, I was living in Egypt at the time. We, we absolutely bonded with his vision of the world, of a, a world where you, know, where you need to have mobile societies. I mean, I, I think he went too far in some of what he said, but he was a huge inspiration. And obviously, when I started thinking about this book, I remembered that Chapman's first book, which is called The Nomadic Alternative, was, was never published. It was commissioned by, um, by Jonathan Cape, which is the company that I started being published by. My first book was published by him. And I, so I looked into what had happened to that book. And he did write it. it. It went on for years and years and years and years, rather as my Nomad's book did. But, and I finally tracked down a copy of it and I read it. And I was very excited. I thought, you know, this is going to be a huge resource for, for my Nomad's book, Chapman's unpublished Nomad's book. Um, but I, I found, unfortunately, most of what I love about Chapman is the humour and also the beauty of his writing and the very, 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 sharp perception of people. And yet very little of that is present in this first book. In fact, the, this nomadic alternative book is, is a classic first book. He's put down almost everything he knows on the subject. It's, uh, it's quite difficult to get through. I mean, there's a reason why it was never published and never will be published. It's not, it's not up to the standard of, of his other books. But nonetheless, he does stand as, a, yeah, as an inspiration for, for this as for much else. Although I, I wonder how many people read him these days. I think he might have rather fallen from, from favour at the moment. It's kind of reassuring in a way that Chatwin's first book was a was a dud. <laughs> um, I, I remember my, my father was a big fan of Chatwin. He was my father was kind of of his generation, and he gave me uh, in Patagonia, and then I, I lived for some time in Australia, and of course read songlines then about the uh, Australian Indigenous uh, Aboriginals, and that was really quite quite something. But I, I think yeah, what you have achieved here might be something about what uh, Chatwin hoped but failed to do with with his first book. I'm sure he would have absolutely loved it. Well, it's obviously hugely flattering to me. <laughs> Thank you. I I do think that um, some of 
if you remember the song lines, there's a section uh, in the middle, which is called From the Notebooks. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot about nomadic um, thinking, nomadic life, nomadic peoples in there. And quite a bit of that it has also been lifted out of uh, the nomadic alternative, his first book. And I think that was him realising that he only had a limited amount of time because he already knew he was dying of AIDS at that point. And he, I think he just wanted to get down his message. But he wrote a piece for, um, for Vogue when he was working on the nomadic alternative which is called, I think it's called something like it's a nomad, nomad, nomad world. And it's sort of quite charmingly hippie-ish, you know, got to get on the road, man, and keep on moving. And the whole thing is sort of is is undigested in, in a way that the song lines is is absolutely not. The song lines is fully thought through. He knows exactly what he's doing and and how he how he can do it. And I guess that's the difference between a first and a sort of and a later book. And I certainly wouldn't have been able to write my nomads book when I when I first started writing. I mean, I you know I'm, I'm now in my sixties, and it has taken a long time to be able to do something like this. But I also enjoy, I mean, you know, it's, it was a huge challenge, but I enjoyed the challenge. A, a few years ago, I wrote a book about uh, Florence Nightingale and Gustave Flaubert on the Nile together. And one of the reasons I wanted to do it was the challenge of how to write about two characters who have similar experience. Um, they both, they're both in their late 20s. It's before both of them are famous, either of them are famous. You know, Florence Nightingale goes on to become the most, one of the most famous people in Europe in the 19th century for her work uh, nursing in the Crimea. And Gustave Flaubert goes on to write um, the, the, the great European novel of the 19th century, Madame Bovary. And, the, and yet both of them have been completely failed to, to I mean, Florence Nightingale had not been allowed by her family to nurse beforehand. And Flaubert had finished his first novel before this journey and been, his friends had told him to burn it. It was so bad. Um, and yet you know, they go off to Egypt and they're transformed and they go home and they become the people we know. And yet they don't talk to each other. I, I managed to tie them down on the same boat for two days on the Nile. That was that's all I could do. And my editor said, "You can't write a book about two, where the two main characters don't have a relationship." And I said, "Well, I can." And I love the challenge of that. And and happily, I was proved right because it was very well received. Um, and there was also a sense of challenge in this as a you know as a writer to how do you distill. 12,000 years of history into not an academic, but what I was hoping is sort of a, a book that would appeal to everyone and um, and make it a, a, a narrative that, that you would want to start and finish. And well, I'm not the one to judge that, but at least you got to the end, I hear. Yeah, how do you, and there's such a, and it is like 12,000 years is a, is a vast sweep. There is that, you, you mentioned Bruce Chatwin's hippie-ish, you know, we all should be on the road, travel, travel, travel. And that's almost kind of a, I, I doubt Chatwin would cherish the comparison, but almost kind of a Jack Kerouac beat generation sort of attitude. Where, whereas you have this like massive macro thesis about how, and please correct me if I'm utterly butchering this oversimplification, but about how <laughs> hi history and monuments have been created by settled people who have excluded nomads from the story and, and called them killers, whereas actually they're the people who've made stuff happen at, at every stretch of the journey of the journey. Do you kind of see that that personal individual story being compatible with this big picture macro one, or are they just kind of different things? No, 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 I think they are part of the same thing. I mean, they're both re responses to an imbalance in the general perception of the human story. And the, the, you know, we all know that before set, we, before we settled, before humans settled, that we lived as hunter-gatherers, and we know that we, you know, we humans walked out of Africa, and we, we accept those things. 
But once cities come along, there's an assumption that anybody who's not with the settlement program is a barbarian. And part of the reason for that, which is a point that I keep on making, is that uh, in, in this book, Nomads, is that the people who get to write the history are, are settled. And, and obviously they're bringing to their story, even the, the most enlightened of them are still bringing a prejudice. And uh, the nomadic side of the story had, has, not, has been un, either underplayed or completely ignored, partly because nomads have tended not to write down their story. And um, this is part of their, their sense of living lightly, um, and also of the, the importance of oral tradition in all nomadic cultures, as it was in all cultures. And so, for instance, thousand years ago, if we, yes, all of us would have had an extraordinary ability to remember and recite um, verse or stories, huge long stories. And you remember the touchstones of, of Western literature, for instance, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey were not initially written down. They were stories that were told, the, you know, these vastly long stories and beginning of Islam. The, the Quran was, was not written down initially. It was, it was memorized, the entire thing. And people can still do, most, some people can still do this. But for most of us, it's a it's a skill that we've lost, and therefore we rely on on books and well, and now also on things like podcasts and whatever else. But the problem for nomads is that they haven't really been part of this a part of this project, and or if they have, it's been someone like you know the Roman historians writing about the barbarians, and or even further back, go back into the two two thousands BC um, Sumer. There's a, a lovely story of a, um, of a Sumerian princess, this is uh, in what modern day Iraq, who wanted to marry a nomad and her friends, and this, this is, was written down at the time, her friends are saying, you can't do that. He, you know, he wears, he, uh, he, he doesn't live in a fixed home. He eats raw meat. And, and they just keep on listing all these things. And when he dies, they say, he won't be buried. You know, he won't be carried to his tomb. And these are sort of the, just the same. And the, the most important thing, actually, of, of that uh, Sumerian thing is he is not known, as in he's not part of a settled community where everybody, you know, you walk out the street, down the street, and you say hello to your neighbor. And this is the sort of typical, stereotypical, settled prejudice against the nomadic peoples. And it plays out from ancient uh, Mesopotamia the whole way through to today. I mean, with migrants, with uh, travelers in England, you know, with, with people all over the world, there is still the great unease of settled people to migrants who move through. But it's not you know, but it's not based on fact because most of the human story, most of the human story, and most of the last twelve thousand years, this period that I write about, the settled and the nomadic people have lived in very in, in mutual dependence, and also in you know they have sparked each other. And you nomads would would have found life very difficult without settled people, and vice versa. So, but that's not part of the story that we are told, and which is why I set about writing this book. I remember the scene from your book, and he had harsh hands. And it was just, it was a, yeah, exactly. It was a litany. <laughs> um, you mentioned, uh, well, not mentioned, you, you use as a, as a source Herodotus a few times. I'm wondering, did you ever come across the, I think it's 2004 book by the Polish writer Richard Kapuscinski, Travels with Herodotus? Yes, I did. Yes, and I even had uh, had the pleasure of of meeting Kapuscinski. Oh, amazing! How was how um, that? Yeah, it was great. He, he had read one of my books, I, but I had obviously read most of his books, <laughs> and I had reviewed quite a few of them as well. So uh, when he came to London, and it might might have been around the time of the Herodotus book, we had a meeting, 
And yeah, we, we think along very, very similar lines, very, very similar lines. And, we, and it's very difficult not to if you've been traveling around in Africa or in Asia and have encountered firsthand, um, obviously, in, I mean, you know, I, li I live in England and it's easy to ignore nomads most of the time here because as and, uh, something else I write about, you know, Dr. Johnson, there was a reason why when Dr. Johnson created the uh, first English dictionary in the 18th century, he didn't include the word nomad because there weren't any, or if there were, they were they were just not relevant in this country. But if you travel in, in the Middle East or in Asia or in Africa, you, you know, there are very strong, very active nomadic communities today. And and, and it, it, it's, it makes you think. I mean, and these, so a lot of what I've written would be very, very obvious to an awful lot of people in in Asia, for instance, I mean, the, the Mongols are very aware of, the, of, of the, their long, long nomadic tradition. And the same with the Persians. You know, in, in Iran, um, the landscape simply makes large scale farming very difficult because it's either mountain or desert. Most of Iran is either mountain or desert. And so they've always had a nomadic tradition and they continue to have it today. And I, again, I write about because um, I, I traveled with nomads in Iran. But I remember uh, a great program that uh, Melvin Bragg did on BBC where uh, about Persepolis, the, you know, the, the great uh, ancient Persian, well, he calls it a capital. And uh, so he's sitting around at the table doing this, this radio program with a whole lot of academics. And he says, so at what point did uh, the Persians stop being nomadic? And, and there's this sort of awkward silence. And one of the academics said, they never stop being nomadic. They're always nomadic. They can't do otherwise. And he said, but they built Persepolis. And, and then it's explained that Persepolis, even though the name is, a, is the Greek name for the city of, of the Pars or the Persians, was not a city as we understand it. Um, it was a place that was that where the tribes came together, the nomadic peoples of, of various sorts came together to honor the king and to reassert his relationship with the great gods. And so it's it's basically just a cult center um, in the way that Stonehenge was, that was used once or, or several times a year, but not inhabited. And that's as close as the Persians get to having a city because they are nomads. In in other parts, of, I mean, for instance, in you know, in in England, where where the landscape is much easier to settle and to farm, that sort of thing is long forgotten. Yeah, I thought that was such a wonderful way of kind of rebutting that whole premise that nomads don't leave monuments and, and great lasting things behind because this was a city that was meant not and the city as we understand it to live but as you say a cult center a place of worship and, and ceremony well yes I, I mean I opened my nomads book with description of a place called Gobekli Tepe which is it's a puzzle that, that it's not known you know it's not common in that everybody doesn't know about this place because it's so important it's and it's 9500 bc as far as we know and when i first went there it was the only place of its kind in that region so it's on the it's in turkey very close to the syrian border and it's a series of t-shaped columns about 10 or 12 feet high carved straight cut straight and carved with images of humans and animals. And there are a dozen or so of these T-shaped columns in a circle, big circle, and then around uh, in the center of the circle, two higher columns. And uh, imagine a hillside with lots of these circles built in it. 9,500 BC, this is 7,000 years before the pyramids or Stonehenge 
we don't know what happened in you know much of what happened in between those periods in terms of architecture these, these are this is something that was this is the beginning of monumental architecture this is the beginning of humans shaping landscapes in in order to express something about the relationship with the sacred and the divine we don't we don't know who these people were they were hunter-gatherers but be, be, beyond that we really don't know very much about them but they were initially when they started building this thing they were not living there they were nomadic people they were hunter-gatherers they came for again for you know at this particular moment in the year and celebrated or renewed their cult and then one day they just stopped and left it and it got buried and I mean literally some of it was buried while they were still visiting the place but after I think I can't remember how many years they, of it being used they just abandoned it and it, since I wrote about it several other places like that have been found in that region and it, so the the idea, and this is an important idea in the book, that that settled societies built, uh, you know, have that we have monuments because people settled is not true. The very origins of building monuments comes out of nomadic culture, and you know that's a, and if you can therefore um, if you can accept that idea, then you're overturning one of the basic premises of the supremacy of the settled life. That's such a huge. Uh argument and, and okay, it's quite big. The, the last yeah the last time i said that somebody said but surely you're not denying the glory of of ancient greece and rome and, and i said no, i'm not at all what i'm suggesting is you know i i mean ancient greece you know has shaped our world ancient rome shaped our ancient egypt shaped our world the renaissance shaped our world but so did nomadic societies and all i'm calling for is a wider view of who we are and, and for a very good reason, because I think a lot of our view of history comes out of guidelines that were laid down in the 18th century, in particular, the Age of Enlightenment, and where ancient world is being rediscovered. And group of thinkers, there's a man called Winkleman, who my sort of bet noir on this, but he they lay out a theory of human evolution. They talk about standing on the shoulders of, of giants. And that our world has come out of that. Well, yeah, in a way, but only partly. And that there's another side to the story. But that world that Winkleman and others, and we have, you know, philosophers from Goethe, Kant, you know, Mills, all the people who created the, the Enlightenment the, and then the Industrial Revolution and then helped shape our modern world, at least the Western modern world, that whole project seems to be coming, well, it's certainly hitting difficulties and may well be coming to an end. Only a couple of years ago, uh, French President Macron called, admitted that we need a new social contract. Well, if we are going to reimagine who we are and how we, sh how we should or how we can live together, all these billions of people on the planet uh, and all the difficulties we, that we've created for ourselves, we need to understand fully who we have been. And that really is what this book is about. It's calling for a, a wider understanding of, the, of, the, of our past. A wider view of who we are may just end up being the title of this interview, but such a, <laughs> a motivational call. So thanks so much for, for speaking to, to us, to me about your book. I, I really hope people go and read it. I highly recommend the audiobook uh, as well from personal experience. So just one thing, final question to, to bring this back home. We have a lot of people in the Intrepid Times community who love uh, reading and, and also writing, travel writing. And 
I know it's a, a field that you have a lot of experience in and, and opinions on. You you wrote in or, or spoke uh, in an interview with uh, Stanford's The Bookshop that one of the reasons why you've kind of been writing history and kind of sort of straddled the line between those two genres is that in a response to reviewing so many travel books and being so disappointed with so many of them. So what, what do you feel that travel writing has been lacking or, or perhaps more positively, what do you think makes a, a truly great uh, travel book? Yeah, I, I well, I was uh, I had a weekly column on the the Sunday Times in London, um, writing about you know my my book of the week. It was called my my travel book of the week. Um, well, it was mostly travel anyway. And I I was amazed at how I mean obviously there have there's been brilliant travel travel writing, but also that how much of it was so pedestrian, and I couldn't understand mostly why um, we would want to publish or read a book about what somebody did on their holiday, which is, you know, v I mean, I quote in Nomads, for instance, Vita Sackville-West, who wrote a book called 12 Days, about the number of days she spent in the, with nomads in, in Iran. You could maybe get away with that if you were a famous writer in the 1920s, but in the 2020s, I think we need something else. And I, but travel writing um, in the past, well, maybe 10 years has has been completely revitalized. And I I think we're going through a very exciting time. There's a saying that I, a phrase that, I, that I've quoted a few times that I thought, I attributed to Colin Thubron because that's who I heard say it, but he tells me that it actually came from Jonathan Rabin. And it describes travel writing as the red light district of literature, the place where anything goes. And that's both a curse, but it's also part of the blessing. And we are going through a period now where travel writing includes writing about the environment, includes writing about um, personal discovery, spiritual matters, about all sorts of things, about, you know, about architecture. It's able to, in to engage with the issues that not just about going to a particular place, but also the issues that um, concern us in our lives today. And for that reason, it is constantly evolving and, con and always important. And I was, I was thinking about this recently. I had a conversation with Colin Thubin. Um, last weekend, and he his last book was about a place called the Amor River, which I had never heard of before. But turns out it's the tenth, might even be the eighth longest river in the world. And when he went, I was thinking, why would you need to go down a river that no one's ever heard of and write about it? But actually, it's the border between Russia and China, and it's a brilliant way of talking about Russia's anxiety about itself, about the, its failing social policies and education and industries, about its anxiety anxiety about the West. And, and now, of course, with hindsight, it was a brilliant thing to have done, because if you want to understand what's happening in Ukraine today, read Colin Thubron's Amor River book, because so much of, of what the background to what Putin talks about, for instance, is there in expressed in their anxiety with China as they share the border, uh, Russia on one side of the Amur River and China on the other. So travel writing could be endlessly, endlessly flexible and incredibly relevant. And uh, so I think, you know, if I was down on it some years ago when I spoke at Stanford, I'm very, very much up on it at the moment. I think it, it's uh, it, it's a very, very interesting and flexible time for, for travel writers. The difficulty, of course, is with travel journalism. So many of the, I mean, I, I got into it. I was invited to travel by the Sunday Times because I was a novelist and um, they paid me a lot of money and they said, where would you like to go? And I thought, wow, 
I mean, there is, and, and I can choose where I go and you're going to pay me to pay my travel. And so I started traveling. Well, now I think it's very, very difficult to make a living out of travel journalism. Um, the outlets are, are shrinking. The, the number of words I was invited to write a story didn't really matter whether it was two or three thousand words. The point was, it's a story. And now the last piece I wrote for um, that particular publication, I think it was 600 words. And I needed to explain everything about the journey before I went on it. I, I was thinking, why would I need to go on the why would I need to make the trip? I've had to sort of guess everything that's going to happen in order to pitch the story. So some the, the fun and excitement and possibilities have gone out of a lot of travel journalism. But books at the moment are really, really having a good time. It's it's really motivational to hear that, that we're at this kind of rejuvenation of travel writing. And I'm also relieved to hear that you also had to Google the Amor River. Because <laughs> 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 yes, really. um, thank you so much for your time, Anthony. I've really appreciated it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nadia. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.